Good morning. And let's go ahead and begin class of prayer this morning. Gracious Father, we are so thankful to be able to come and study together, and we ask that you'll pour your spirit of truth and love upon us, that as we delve deeper into the mysteries of your plan of salvation, that you enlighten us and draw us close to you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Before I actually get into the lesson, there was an email that came in recently. It says, I was so blessed by a friend that gave me your book, The God-Shaped Brain. While I was sitting in church asking God to please help me learn more about him and help me not to be so confused and scared. That was about two years ago. Your books have helped me to love God even more. I'm not confused and scared anymore. I have listened to all of your Sabbath school classes and feel like I know the wonderful people that attend every week. I know their voices because I jog while I'm listening. The the five miles I jog feels effortless. January, I found out I had breast cancer. February, I had them removed and implants were put in. God has blessed me so much through this time. I stand in awe of his love. The anesthesiologist, who is a good friend of mine, asked if he could pray with me while I was on the operating table. One of the nurses overheard him and asked if she uh, could join us. Later, after the surgery, my friend came to visit and told me that he'd never felt the Holy Spirit filling uh, the operating room like that before. God's love is absolutely amazing. I am at home recovering now, and after my uh, daughter's wedding, I plan to take a trip to come and sit in your class. Thank you for all that you're doing to spread the true message about God and his law of love. God bless you and your whole Sabbath school class with heart full of love. Amen. We're doing lesson one in the new quarterly, Family Seasons, and the title for the lesson is The Rhythms of Life. And the lesson points our attention to Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 8, and I'm going to read it out of NIV. There's a time for everything. And a season for every activity under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. We like that one, don't we? (laughs) A time to scatter stones and a time to uh, gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain. A time to search and a time to give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. Is this true? Yes. No. <laughs> okay, is this eternal truth? Ah, see what I just did there? Yeah, so so this is a true description of the ebbs and flows of life in a world of sin. That's what that describes, the ebbs and flows in a world of sin. It's describing the pull and tug between the, the forces of good and the forces of evil battling on planet Earth. It's describing the tensions um, back and forth of the forces of death and the law of life, the law of God and the law of sin. So these truths described here are true for two reasons. One, sin is affecting God's creation. And two, God's grace did not abandon us to sin. That's why you see these truths battling back and forth in the world today. Would there be any tension between sinful humans and sinful angels naturally if God weren't intervening in our hearts? Ellen White puts it this way in Sons of the Times, July 11, 1895. The Lord says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. This is in Genesis, of course, when he's speaking to the serpent. Uh, The enmity does not exist as a natural fact. As soon as Adam sinned, he was in harmony with the first great apostate and at war with God. 
And if God had not interfered in man's behalf, Satan and man would have formed a confederacy against heaven and carried on united opposition against the God of hosts. So, so this, this opposition, this, this desire for good, this because God's grace, God's spirit's working in our heart to implant a desire for good. And when you think of God's intercessions, do you think through the human law lens, one member of the Godhead interceding with another member of the Godhead to plead some legal payment on his behalf so the judicial magistrate won't have to find fault and punish? Are you thinking that historical way that intercession has been presented throughout Christianity? Or are you thinking Father, Son, Holy Spirit interceding with the forces of evil to heal and restore his creation? And God intercedes, by the way, in three places. One, he intercedes in our hearts and minds to give us a desire for good, to, lo- to draw us, to woo us. He intercedes with the principalities and powers of darkness, the hedge of protection, the holding back the four winds of strife, and so forth. And in the person of Jesus Christ, he interceded with the natural course of what sin does to the species. The natural course of what sin does without intervention, without God's intercession, without Christ, it results in death. But Christ became sin, though he knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. We have an alternate path now. So this is the interventions or intercessions. Yes. When she's talking about the circle of beneficence, she talks of the Father as the one who's the source, and the blessings come from Him through Christ to us, and then in thankfulness we give back through Christ to Him. So it seems like that's another sense of intercession in that He's, you know, acting like that. Right, so the, in, the intervention or intercession that God, uh, Jesus has always been the conduit. We've talked about this both prior to the creation of humanity. An infinite God who lives in unapproachable light that finite beings cannot enter because we're not infinite. So a member of the Godhead leaves infinity to interact with his creation and reveal the infinite God to his creation. Christ was always that member who was receiving and taking from infinity to share with all of his creation, even in a world before sin or in the universe before sin. And so on earth, he is still that intercessor or that one who is the envoy or ambassador. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So I agree with that. It's very nicely said. Sunday's lesson, Genesis 1.1 states, In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. What's the beginning of what? In the beginning, in Genesis 1, beginning of what? In the beginning. Is that the same beginning as John 1.1? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Are those the same beginnings? Get your mind around that. Many people miss that. Many people think Genesis 1-1 in the beginning is the beginning of all things. It's not the beginning of all things. The beginning of creation of? Of, of, of what part of God's creation? The whole creation? No. Of the earth. Of the earth, of the solar system, I would even say. The solar system. It says in Job 38 that the sons of God sang together for joy when the foundations of the earth were laid. So there was created beings already in existence prior to creating Genesis 1-1 account. This is critical because many people criticize Christians, uh, scientists, when they look out and say, well, the universe, we've got evidence, it's billions of years old, and you say it was only 6,000 years ago or something like this in Genesis 1-1. Genesis 1-1 is not the account of the creation of the universe. Sun, moon, and stars on day four? That's the solar system. If you've ever seen in the evening, I had a cool picture where I can see the stars of the solar system. Venus, Mercury, Mars, and so forth. Jupiter, you can see them. These are the stars of the solar system. If you get a chance, y'all should look at Chuck Missler, who passed away recently, does an amazing job. And I think it's pretty clear, though most of Christian hasn't embraced it, but uh, that the constellations actually tell the gospel story. It's intriguing. These, all these stars are set out there, where therefore the surface was created, but 
take the brightest of each of the constellation stars, take the Hebrew and Arabic names, it builds those constellations. But God tells the gospel story with the constellations, not the Greek mythology. Thank you. Humanity was the crowning act of God's creation, the final piece in a universe of, of creation, uh, possessing the attributes of God, not just to individuality, free will to think and to choose, but capacities to procreate, a, a dominion to govern. This world was, was, a, was a microcosm, if you will, of, of the universe itself with, with two beings that could come into the unity of love and give of themselves and create in their own image. This was the crowning act where God reposited in, in a created being the, the most attributes of his own divine personhood. And this is one of the reasons why Satan targeted this planet. Because th- this species, Adam and Eve, had the ability to make beings in their image. Now, if you're a, str- if you're a strategist, you're, you're a, uh, a, 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 at war, uh, you're a general, uh, you're at war with another force, what do you want to do? You, have you ever heard something called force multipliers? You want to multiply your force. There's, there's things that multiply your force. Uh, weapons that can give larger destruction. Uh, uh, things that can multiply the impact of your force. So Satan, as he's doing this war, it's already began. Angels a third have rebelled. Two-thirds are still on the Lord's side. Who knows about the other worlds in the universe? But now there's a creation. If he, if he can get them to go to his side, what did he just do? They create beings in their image. It's a force multiplier. He takes the progenitors. He corrupts the progenitors, and now all the children born from the corrupt progenitors are on naturally whose side? See, this was, this was part of the strategy. I'm going I'm to co-opt this, and I'm going to build my army to war against heaven. We just read about how if God had not intervened, human beings and, and fallen angels and fallen humans would have been in a confederacy united against heaven. So there's a stratagem here why this planet was targeted, if you ever wondered why this planet was targeted. Force multiplier. But God did not abandon us. God did not leave us under the rule of of Satan. Second paragraph uh, in the lesson says, on Sunday's lesson, Ellen White wrote that order is the first law, uh, is heaven's first law. And it's quoting the signs of the time, June 8, 1908. And I thought, well, let's just read a little more of that. Order is heaven's first law, and the Lord desires his people to give in their homes, a representation of the order and harmony which pervades the heavenly courts. Truth never places her delicate feet in the path of uncleanliness and impurity. Truth does not make men and, uh, men and women coarse and rough or untidy. It raises all who accept it to a higher level. Under Christ's influence, a work of constant refinement goes on. What does this mean? constant refinement. What is that talking about? The healing of our hearts and minds. Healing. Rege- yes. Regeneration. Growth. Advancement. Cleansing. So as we are living in the last days, soon Christ is coming for his people to take them to the mansions he's prepared for them. But nothing that defiles can enter those mansions. Heaven is pure and holy, and those who pass through the gates of the city of God must be clothed in with inward and outward purity. What do, you, what do you hear there? Do you hear the plan of salvation is God's plan to actually make you 
holy, healthy, pure, undefiled, recreated, reborn, regenerated, renewed. Uh, Do you hear the plan of salvation as actually something that literally transforms and heals you? Or do you hear it as something that just declares you to be changed even though you're not changed? How do you hear it? How do you understand it? Yeah. What kind of law do you hear described in this idea that nothing that's unholy and impure can can enter into the heavenly kingdom? Is this a system of rules? Well, we have to go over your record, and and uh, and uh, in the record, uh, uh, we we find uh, uh, there's a there's a uh, demerit that you've never recalled. You know, the example I give in one of my books: first grader steals a pen. Because he, he was jealous of somebody else, had a little, little pen that lights up, and, and, and when that was out at recess, he goes over and steals the pen. And, and because of that, he begins to develop a character of a thief, and he steals more and more. And, and, in, and in his early adult, he gets arrested as a thief, and, 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 uh, and he gets prosecuted as a thief, and, and uh, in prison, in prison ministries, bring him Jesus Christ, and he gives his heart to the Lord, and he has a, he's reborn, he has, a, he has a new heart. The law of love is written. He never steals again. He's loyal, he's faithful. Uh, he, he gives to others. He even gives extra on his taxes to make sure he's not cheating the government. But he never remembers the pen. You're so close. Yes. <laughs> Do we believe in the judgment that that's what it's about? Well, look, I go into his record, I'm investigating oh, oh, all these things. Oh, but there's one pen he never asked for. The legal charges remain. You have to be tortured and killed. Is that what we view the, the judgment to be? Yeah. About deeds recorded in books. This is how the penal legal human model views it. It's all about the stuff done like a human law court, and you never brought that before the court. You never asked for the, uh, the payment of Jesus to be made. Therefore, G- the God, even though he loves you, can't do anything about it because you're still legally guilty. It still remains in the books. It's corruption. It's a lie. It's a fraud. It cheats people out of the healing that God wants them to have. So close. I love that. So close. So close. <laughs> so why can't the impure enter into heaven? Because God has is, is, is got some gatekeeper there checking their names against a registry and uh, they didn't get legally cleared. They don't have their you know, global access card to come back into the country. Okay, So, so they aren't on the cleared list. I'm going to put that to you and I'm going to go through in detail a, a quote out of the uh, book, Great Congress, page 541. And I want you to let's just unpack this together because I think it's quite profound. So the principles of kindness, mercy, and this is um, Great Controversy 541. The principles of kindness, mercy, and love taught and exemplified by our Savior are a transcript of the will and character of God. Christ declared that he taught nothing except that which he had received from his Father. The principles of the divine government are in perfect harmony with the Savior's precept, love your enemies. What kind of law is being described here? Keep this in mind with the very next words. Keep this in mind because many people read this and they completely hit the lead button when they go to the very next words. Here's the very next words. Because I just, the last words, the principles of divine government are in perfect harmony with the Savior's precepts. Love your enemies. Next words. God executes justice upon the wicked for the good of the universe and even for the good of those upon whom his judgments are visited. Those words, do you hear through human imperial law? 
how our justice systems work? Or are you still over in the framework of design law, how reality is designed to operate in harmony with God's nature and character? What does justice look like in an imperial law court? What does it look like? It's always punishment. Proper and appropriate, but it's always punishment. What's justice look like in design law court, even for the disobedient? Your child is disobeyed and, and drank the poison under the, under the sink and is seizing and foaming at the mouth. What's justice look like for that disobedient child? That's exactly right. Under design law, it's always healing and restoring those who will allow the healing and restoration. Keep going with this quote. He executes justice upon the wicked for the good of the universe, even for the good of those upon whom his judgments are visited. He would make them happy if he could do so in accordance with the laws of his government and the justice of his character. Again, what kind of law? What kind of justice? What law lens do you hear those words through? Can love be forced? Can love be achieved by threat? Can love be achieved by punishing people who don't love you? He would make that. He would make them happy. He would bring them love if he could, in harmony with the the precepts of his character and, the, and his government. But but how does government work? The law of love, truth, freedom. You can't coerce this stuff. He surrounds them with the tokens of his love. He grants them a knowledge of his law and follows them with the offers of mercy. But they despise his love, make void his law, and reject his mercy. While constantly receiving his gifts, they dishonor the giver. They hate God because they know that he abhors their sin. Abhors their sin? Like a doctor abhors the bubonic plague and its deforming lesions of his loved ones. He abhors the sin. He doesn't abhor the sinner. He abhors the deformity, the infection, the corrosion, the corruption to his design that's killing. The Lord bears long with their perversity, but the decisive hour will come at last when their destiny is to be decided. Decided. Pause. Are you thinking through imperial law? Well, the judge is sitting. He's evaluating the records. He's determining cases. He will make a decision. He will make a ruling. Is that how you hear the word? Before I even go on to the rest of the quote, because it becomes very plain in a, in a few moments as the quote continues. Or... Do, Or do you hear it through design law? Who decides the destiny here? The the final moment comes when their destiny, a decisive hour comes at last, when their destiny will be decided. Decided by whom? Who makes the decision for them? Well, let's keep reading. Will he, God, chain these rebels to his side? Will he force them to do his will? Those who have chosen Satan as their leader and have been controlled by his power are not prepared to enter the presence of God. What does this mean? Why are they not prepared? Uh, What law lends? Uh, Are they not prepared because they forgot to file the proper legal brief? And if they'd only filed the proper legal brief and had the proper legal argument before the judicial magistrate, then they could enter the court and win their case. But they're not prepared because they don't have their legal brief ready. They don't have the right payment to go in. If they only had the right payment, if they had the blood of the perfect human sacrifice, then they could go in with the blood and say, look, the blood, I've got the blood, I can come in now. The right lawyer. lawyer. They only need the right lawyer. If they only had the right lawyer to go and advocate for them in front of the judicial magistrate, then they could go in. Is that how you hear this? Or is it there's actually something about their state of being that is unfitting them? 
to go into his presence. So let's keep on with the quote. Okay, remember, there was a decisive hour. The, the, would he chain them to the side? The, the, they've chosen Satan earlier. They're not prepared. Now, here's the next words. Pride, deception, licentiousness, cruelty have become fixed in their characters. Pause. How did these attributes become fixed in their characters? Who fixed them in their characters? Does this being fixed in their characters have any bearing on a decisive hour coming that decides their destiny? Can they enter heaven to dwell forever with those whom they despise and hate on earth? Truth will never be agreeable to a liar. Meekness will never satisfy self-esteem and pride. Purity is not acceptable to the corrupt. Disinterested love does not appear attractive to the selfish. What source of enjoyment could heaven offer to those who are wholly absorbed in earthly and selfish interests? Could those whose lives have been spent in rebellion against God be suddenly transported to heaven and witness the high, holy state of perfection that ever exists there? Every soul filled with love, every countenance beaming with joy, enrapturing music and melodious strains, rising in honor of God and the Lamb, and ceaseless streams of love flowing upon the redeemed from the face of him who sits on the throne. Could those whose hearts are filled with hatred of God, of truth and holiness, mingle with the heavenly throng and enjoy and join their songs of praise? Could they endure the glory of God and the Lamb? No, no, is the answer. No, no. Why not? Before I read on, why not? Because God's unwilling? Because there's some legal registry that prevents them? There's a sword, a great, an angel with a flaming sword? Why can't they be there? Is God angry at them? Hostile? It's his attitude. He sees them walking in. He catches the gun. Oh, how dare you come into my presence? <laughs> I'm going to get you now. Is that why they can't stand it? Because God turns wrathful and angry towards them and frightens them and they run away. No. Years of probation were granted them that they might form characters for heaven. But they have never trained the mind to love purity. They have never learned the language of heaven. And now it is too late. A life of rebellion has, a life of rebellion against God has unfitted them for heaven. Its purity, holiness, and peace would be torture to them. The glory of God would be a consuming fire. Pause. What kind of law do you hear in operation here? Is this just on God's part? Do you hear any justice being op- in operation here? Is it just and right for God to grant sentient beings the freedom to choose their destiny? Even if that choice causes them to reject the only path of love and life. Even if that choice causes them to suffer in his holy presence. Even if that choice results in his losing the children he loves. Is that just and right for him to grant them that choice? They would long to flee from that holy place. They would welcome destruction. Notice, they would welcome destruction that they might be hidden from the face of him who died to redeem them. Notice the quality of the one they want to be hidden from. What's the quality attribute that's described in this very sentence? The one who died to redeem them. It's the quality of self-sacrificial love. It's the quality of somebody I'd give my life for you. Okay, And that loving quality that I love you so much I'd give my life for you, they want to hide from that. They don't want to be in that presence. The destiny of the wicked is fixed by their own choice. So back earlier, there was a 
time coming, a decisive hour when the destiny was going to be fixed. Who fixed it? Do you get your mind around this, folks? This thing that is taught in Christianity that your destiny is determined in a judicial process in heaven where God reviews records and he makes a judgment to determine your destiny is fraudulent. It's Satan's lie. It's based on imperialism. It's based on, on, on Roman concepts of law. It is not how God's government works. Their exclusion from heaven, I love this, this is, just get your mind around this, and then we'll go back to the justice. Remember, justice and mercy, and justice on, on the part of God. He executes justice on them. Look at this word, word. Their exclusion from heaven is voluntary with themselves, and just and merciful on the part of God. Why are they out of heaven? They don't want to be there. Just as Revelation says, they fall, they cry for the mountains to fall on them and hide them from him who sits on the throne. Yes. There's a lady, Jody Arias. She was a convicted murderer. And one of her last statements was, uh, well, the worst outcome for me would be natural life. I would rather die sooner than later. I believe, I believe death is the ultimate freedom, so I'd rather just have my freedom as soon as I can get it. You hear it? Judas. How did Judas' life end? This is what happens. Yes, Linda. Well, I remember being surprised when you mentioned that um, in the past that the New Jerusalem, which is present when the wicked are raised, and they're they're actually taking time to organize and make weapons and so on. When they finally get around to attacking the holy city, then Jesus orders that the gates be closed, which means that it was always open up until that point. Right. And they didn't come in. They don't want to be there. So in the last sentence of this quote, after the, their, their exclusion from heaven is voluntary with themselves and just and merciful part of God. Do you see God's justice here? Is his justice inflicting something on them or simply setting them free to experience what they voluntarily want? And so the last sentence, like the waters of the flood, the fires of the great day declares God's verdict that the wicked are incurable. So what's his verdict? Now, does his verdict, when God gives the verdict, the wicked are incurable, does it, his verdict make them incurable? Or does his verdict merely make plain and acknowledge and state openly the reality that already exists? And that reality exists because they have persisted in breaking and solidifying, breaking God's design law and solidifying themselves in rebellion against God. Yes. I want to go back to, to her point on the gates are open until the final attack on the New Jerusalem after the New Jerusalem is brought down to earth. We've always been taught a timeline of probation closing prior to the second coming. Is that a correct timeline? Sure. If those gates are open, can those people still come in and be accepted? So the question is, what was the reason for the gates? And why is it open? suggesting that we just don't want to go in, right? So, so how is it that God wins his case? By declaring his innocence and making you decide on the declaration. I declare I'm innocent. Satan's lied. Make your decision. Is that how he wins his case? No, no. It, it goes directly to your question. I'm about to give you the answer. How does he win his case? You have to answer, understand this first. How does reality work? By evidence that demonstrates. And so... Throughout history, God has used power to shorten people's earthly life, putting them in the grave. 
many places. Flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, um, firstborn of Egypt, the, uh, the uh, platoons that came to arrest Elijah, fire came down. So okay, many people in the penal legal view say, ah, he shut down their probation, he, he, he shortened their life, and, and et cetera, et cetera. God demonstrates in the resurrection of the wicked that no actions he's ever taken determines their destiny. By raising them at the end of the thousand years with the New Jerusalem on earth and the gates open, it's demonstrated that they're out, not because of any action he took historically to shorten their life, but they're out because the current condition of their character and heart keeps them out. They keep themselves out. So could they come in? As far as God's concerned, they could. Will they come in? No, because they've already solidified themselves, as we just read, in per- perfect rebellion against God. They would hate to be in that city. But if they came in, would they be accepted? Would they be? I just read what would happen if they came in. If they came in, it would be a place of torment to them. They would hate the purity. They would hate the holiness. They would hate the love. They would hate the truth because they've solidified themselves in absolute rebellion against it. So would they be accepted by God doesn't reject them. They are unfit to be there, and they would hate to be there, and they wouldn't allow themselves to be there. Yeah. It would be hell. It would be the tor- place of torture for them, yes. Well, with regard to the close of probation... Uh, I think traditionally people have thought of it as a time when God sort of arbitrarily says, okay, you can't change your mind after that. I tend to think that close of probation is really the time when everyone has made their choice and then... So, so it, and there's revelation to support that. And Jesus stands up and says, let him who is righteous be righteous still. Let him who is wicked be wicked still. That would be just a succinct way of describing what's happening here. We're solidified in righteousness or we're solidified in unrighteousness. That's when probation closes. Yes. There's a phrase that I have heard for a long time and even have said and believed until recently when I discovered your teachings. It was um, to, to give people hope when they thought that God didn't accept them anymore, that they had ruined whatever plan. It was always saying, you can never ruin God's plan for you. And now I see that completely different. God had a different plan for Satan. He had a different plan for Adam and Eve, and they definitely ruined that plan. And it's like, it, it, I never realized that I, by accepting that phrase, I was accepting the predestination and destiny and how even the evil ones were destined to die, not just the good ones to go to heaven. Right. No, I, th- that statement is a subtle lie. See, we can ruin God's claim. We cannot ruin God's actions. <laughs> we can't ruin what God has done for us, but we can certainly ruin our participation in what he's done for us. Yes. You know, it's interesting. You know, all the wicked agree that, with the diagnosis. They agree with the verdict. No one says, you're wrong, God. In the very end, remember, the wicked don't even attack the city in the very end. They attack each other. That's when the fire comes down. So, so they're in unison that God's right. They don't belong there. They don't want to be there. Initially, they want to blame someone else for why they're wrong. When the yeah. fire comes down, they all have their own second death experience. But they, when they perish, they want to perish. That's what they want. And the evidences are, if you read, if you read widely, we're not, I didn't want to get all, all that part of it, but... Uh, after they march on the city and the gates are closed, then Christ rises high above in a, a, a throne of burnished gold and fire comes down through the city and out through the gates. Who's in the city? Righteous. The righteous. And what's it? another, again, how does God win? He demonstrates. He reveals. There's nothing harmful in the fire. The righteous live in the fire for all eternity. Remember it says in Daniel 7, the ancient days takes his throne and rivers of fire come out before him. 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands and thousands stand in this fire. This fire's not harmful. This is the fire of truth and love. This is the fire of God's infinite presence. This is the fire that Moses' face was radiating. This is the fire that, he, that, uh, that, uh, that the fiery chariot that Elijah rode into heaven on was, was doing. We're all going to live in that fire. It's a purifying fire. 
It's a fire of truth and love. It's not a fire. Of, it's not a fire of combustion. And it burns those who have solidified, just like it describes here. His presence to them, it said in the quote, would be a consuming fire. It consumes sin, selfishness, uh, lies, deceitfulness, and so forth. Truth burns through it. Love burns through it. They hate it. They don't want it. Okay? Just a quick thing. I also worry about the statement, God is in control. Yeah. Who a lot of people, including my dear mother, always say, God is in control. And I have to say, of what? Good point. Good point. So... And also uh, end up thinking, well, if God's in control he, and he allowed this to happen, then he's the reason I didn't get saved, etc. So God is in control of himself and his universe and his laws that he governs his universe upon. And the entire controversy is over that question. What, what, what laws do God, does God govern on? Does he govern on imperialism, like we use? Or does he govern on design law, which is a law of love and liberty, where he leaves people absolutely free and thus are exercising our freedom and ultimately the justice of letting people have their choice is consistent with his character and his laws that he sustains through this process. You got a question? Comment? And when God failed his glory, yes. he did so in the very beginning of Satan's rebellion. Because had he not done that, Satan could not have lived in his existence to tell his mind. Yeah, so I, I, I don't know about, I don't, certainly on earth that happened. Adam and Eve, he veiled his glory, their lobes of light went away. Um, Christ veiled his glory when he came as humankind. Don't really know much about that part of heaven when you see in the book of Job and Satan comes walking amongst the angels who are still, right? I don't really know much about angelic ability to, to stand there or not. Um, is there aspects where it was veiled, where God didn't reveal the full force of his truth and infinite love upon him at that point? I think it's probably reasonable to think. Yeah, and so, so in that essence, Satan stood in God's grace and mercy. Sure he did. Without even knowing. Yeah, that's exactly right. So do you see the flaw of the imperial lie, the imperial law lie, and how it's infected Christianity? I'm, I want to get to this, this, this next point because this question came in during this week, and I told the person who emailed it I was going to try to answer it in class. And it says, when we consider God's wrath either letting go or the unveiled glory-consuming sinfulness or Jesus on the cross experienced God's wrath, does God's will play a role in deciding when to unveil his wrath? And if so, would it be better for some law to determine when his will gets manifested some, rather than some other mechanism? That was the question that came in. Well, how do you understand design law and, and, God's, and why God's wrath comes? Do you understand the scripture God's wrath is letting go? The wrath of God is being revealed against all godlessness and wickedness and men to suppress truth by their wickedness in Romans 1, 18. And then four, three times he says, therefore God gave them up, he let them go. And on the cross, Romans 4, 25, you know, um, God surrendered Christ or let him go to his choice. So what was happening here? Why did God do it? See, this is the law of liberty and the law of love and operation. If you understand what was happening at the cross, was God punishing Jesus at the cross in some legal mechanistic way, which is taught through the imperial law view? Or was Jesus, God was in the Son, reconciling the world to himself, as the scripture says? Which way was it? The second way. And therefore, Jesus is the means through which God achieves his goal. And what's God's goal for the human species? Salvation. So Jesus is the means through which God achieves that goal. Now, what was necessary for the salvation of humankind once Adam corrupted humankind Two things were necessary. The truth that destroys the lies needed to be revealed and the infection of selfishness, the carnal nature, the survival drive that we all struggle with had to be eliminated and a new God's law had to be restored in humankind. 
The only way for Jesus to do that was he who knew no sin became sin. He took upon himself this terminal condition in order to cure it. He had to eliminate this survival drive. So he's attempted, it says in scripture, in every way, just like we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 2.14. We're tempted, we're dragged away and enticed by our own evil desires. James chapter 1. Both are true in Christ. He wasn't just tempted externally by Satan. He experienced the pull of what we experience in Gethsemane. He, and on the cross, he had powerful human emotions that pulled him and tempted him to act in self-interest to save himself. And you see this temptation over and over again. Save yourself, save yourself. But the only way for him to free humanity from this internal corruption was for him to feel the temptation, but to love perfectly. No one can take my life. I give it freely. And so at the cross, he destroys death, 2 Timothy 1, 10, and brings life and immortality to light by destroying the infection that causes death and restoring the law of life back into the species in his own personal humanity that he assumed. So in order for him to do that, he had to die. Because at any point along death's approach, if he uses his power to stop death from taking him, who did he just act to save? And that's selfishness. It's the only way to, to ex, ex, eliminate selfishness is to love perfectly. Greater love is no man that he give his life for a friend, Jesus said. This is the way he did it. And so the only way he could die, though, and you get some elements of this, why did, Lazarus, why did Jesus stay away from Lazarus for the three days? Yeah, the only way he could die was from the source of life to let him go. If God doesn't let go of his son... He's the source of life. His son can't die. He can't achieve his mission. So God doesn't let him go to punish him. He lets him go so the Godhead can fulfill their goal of providing the remedy to cure us. And this is how Jesus could then prophesy or tell his uh, disciples, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be abused by men. I'm going to die and I'm going to rise on the, on the third day. He t- how many times did he tell them that? But Ellen White says he could not see through the portals of the tomb. How could he tell them he was going to rise on the third day without seeing through the portals of the tomb? Because he understood design law. He understood what life is built upon. How many of you can predict what will happen if I let go of this? Three of you can do that. Okay. Okay. So, so, so you can predict that. Wait a second. Wait a second. Get your mind around what I'm about to say now. That's a future event. Do you have the gift of prophecy? How can you predict this future event? Because you know the law. And when you know the law, life becomes predictable. He knew the law of love, and this is the basis of life. And thus he knew when he completed his mission of eliminating fear and selfishness in the humanity he he partook of through Mary, that he would destroy the source of death, destroy death and bring life and immortality to light, and he would rise on the third day. His, His resurrection was the inevitable outcome of his perfect restoration of the law of life. This is how he could say this. And this is why those who teach the imperial view will teach another lie. Jesus died the second death. The second death is a death from which there's no resurrection. The second death is a death in which individuality and identity are destroyed. The second death is important to them because they believe the lie that, that Jesus had to take our punishment. And they understand that the unrepentant wicked will die for all eternity. And if that's the, uh, the, the fate of the unrepentant wicked, and, and, and the only way for me to have salvation is somebody to pay that legal penalty, well, then he had to pay that legal penalty, or else I don't have my penalty paid, and I'm in trouble, and I'm scared. So I've got to teach that he died eternally. He did not die the second. He destroyed death. 2 Timothy 1.10, check me out. He destroyed death. He was not destroyed by death. It's a completely different understanding. And this is why the gospel has languished. So my view of the whole wrath question then is that God gave Jesus up, set him free to experience what Jesus freely chose. And he said, no one can take my life. I give it 
freely. It was his choice and God surrendered him to it for the purpose of completing the mission that God had wanted. And the wicked in the end, we just read, we just read, their death is voluntary with themselves. And God surrenders them to their free will choice as well. And that is the wrath of God. And what kind of law is that? It's design law. And there is no other system of arbitrary rule cutting that would be better than that. And that's mercy. And that is mercy. It's grace. It's love. It's justice. Yes. Okay, so I'm going to have to... Um, wow, I'm going to move on now to the, to the question and answer time. So let me close with prayer. I'm going to close with prayer. There's going to be a 30-second break while the credits run on the Sabbath school class. And then we're going to go to the question and answer period that that's, we're going to run. It's just a beautiful concept. When the fire comes down from, from heaven, some perish from moment, others suffer days, and it's thrown at us for years. And yet it's a beautiful concept because God preserves your life until they want to give it up. And they, Jesus is the most unselfish words. He could say, Father, in the hands I give you my spirit. He did unselfish. But if I say those words because I'm going to, I want to perish, it's a cruel saying I can say to God. So it shows the extreme opposite of selfishness and, and love. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you are a God of love who has designed and created all reality to operate in harmony with your character and principles. Lord, there's an enemy out there who's filled the minds of human beings with this gross distortion of imperialism that we, we have thought for years that you run your universe like a dictator runs Rome. But Lord, we see the truth in Jesus and we ask that your Holy Spirit of truth and love will come and enlighten our minds, transform us to to be your people, that we can take the final message of mercy to the world to prepare people to meet you. We pray in your holy name. Amen.